This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure. Go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Fifteen hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. Five hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And fifteen minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. All right, it's official. Tim Spreen is flying solo behind the audio board uh, tonight. Although David Gaskin, my uh, technical producer, is somewhere in the building, sort of supervising. Uh, but David, uh, this is his last show as my technical producer, and uh, I think he has a couple of morning shifts early next week, and then he is off to Kathmandu. So that's uh, technical producer number three and counting. You're gonna, you're not gonna leave me, are you, Tim? After like a year, you're you're in this for the long haul. Good, he's giving me the thumbs up. All right. So out with the old and in with the new. Uh, but all the best to uh, to David Gaskin, Katmandu. Wasn't there a Bob Seger tune about Katmandu? I think so. Maybe we should play that at some point. Can we, is that possible? Do we have Kat, uh, Bob Seeker at AM740? I doubt it. Oh, well. It was a th- Hey, welcome to the broadcast, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, good to have you aboard. And um, uh, I want to say, you know, to the doctor, George Unescu, he is a doctor, the uh, the host of the uh, the program that precedes this big band Sunday night here on the all-new AM740, safe trip home as he travels north up to Simcoe County. And uh, I also want to say a big hello to three new affiliates that are joining the Conspiracy Show. Uh, Let's see. We've got WGHQ AM 920 in Kingston, New York. WGHQ AM 920 Kingston, New York. WBNR AM 1260 in Beacon, New York. And finally... A big hello, how are you, to WLMA AM 1420 in Peekskill, New York. Uh, Those are all, if um, uh, I recall correctly, are in the Hudson Valley. So the conspiracy show has just about got the Hudson Valley covered. So welcome, welcome uh, to all three of you. Good to have you aboard. Now, uh, we're going to talk about an organization you may have never heard of. But they're out there. They number somewhere thirty to 40,000. They meet annually. And essentially, they, uh, they discuss 
how best to create global governance. They're called the World Federalist Movement. Some of them may be well-intended, most of them may be. Some of you, and myself included, don't necessarily want world government. Uh, neither does my next guest, and he's here to tell us what goes on at the World Federalist Movement meetings and what we need to be concerned about. Carl Teichrib is chief editor at Forcing Change. He's an expert on globalization and its many subtopics. He's been an accredited observer and or participant in a variety of international events, including the United Nations Millennium Forum, the UN Third World Urban Forum, Global Governance 2002, and other major global conferences. Carl Teichrip, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Hey, I'm doing well. It's good to be with you. The World Federalist Movement. Now, they are, uh, they're out of New York, are they not? Yes, that's where the international headquarters is located. Uh, they have been around, Richard, for quite some, some time, 65 years to be exact. So the organization has some roots. It has a foundation already. And, and my understanding is that they essentially uh, formed... Uh, in the wake of the formation of the United Nations because they didn't think the United Nations was, uh, was going to get the job done. In other, other words, the UN was, was a little too close to the League of Nations, too similar to the League of Nations, which had failed, for example, to prevent World War II. Yes, but there's something more than that. Actually, the idea of world federalism predates the United Nations. Indeed, you actually see world federalists at work during World War II, in even the earlier days of World War II. And, and actually, Richard, you can trace back the movement, not necessarily the organized movement, but the movement towards world federalism back to the days of World War I. Uh, actually, I have in my hand right here a book by Nicholas Murray Butler, who was the president of Columbia University. And in 1914, he was calling for a federated international government one that would have its own military force, its own judicial system, and that would become literally an effective world government. And so it wasn't necessarily that it was about the United Nations. However, world federalists did play a role, and actually a significant role, in helping to formulate the idea of the United Nations with the hopes that the UN would become more than just a strengthened League of Nations. And you're right, after, after the United Nations was founded, there actually was some disappointment. They really believed that they could take it and notch this thing up a few levels and actually have it become a, a, an effective and more authoritative form of world government. But when, when many of us uh, think about one world government, we think about groups like the Bilderbergs or the Trilateral Commission or the Council on Foreign Relations or these unelected oligarchs, these super elites working behind the scenes uh, to bring about sort of one world, sort of a corpocracy. Uh, we don't think of the World Federalist Movement. This sounds like a fairly innocuous bunch. I think they number, as I said, between 30 and 50,000 members worldwide. Uh, you know, I'm not thinking that these are a group necessarily to be feared, or am I wrong? Well, I don't actually really believe they are to be feared, per se. I believe they should really be understood more than they should be feared, because when you understand the process and the philosophy and the goals of world federalism, then you at least have something to work with, even if you are opposed to the idea, which I am, as you are as well with your earlier statement. Uh, but what makes them interesting is that they are not a secretive group. 
And in this sense, they're not a conspiracy. They are, rather, a movement, which is what their name implies. And so it's actually a membership-run organization. It seeks out public acceptance and public membership to help build up uh, political pressure, leverage within cultures and societies towards this idea of world federalism and world government. And so they are unique, Richard, in that sense. It's not like the Bilderbergers that hide behind closed doors and, and guards. Uh, they are a much more open organization. They are a non-profit organization. They do put uh, tax uh, reports out. They have annual reports that they have to file. Uh, their statements and goals and intents is known. It's open. And in that sense, that, that, that sets them apart. But the other thing it does is it almost makes them benign sounding it makes them um, it makes it so that you end up actually looking right past them thinking that well this group cannot have the clout or the influence that it hopes to have for the goals it seeks to achieve because after all it's out in the open they are in a sense what hg wells would have called the open conspiracy well let's talk about some of their their goals or their objectives what how do they see one world government operating they see one world government coming about as a democratically elected, federated form of government. Now, I mean, that sounds great. That sounds wonderful on the surface. But democracy does not necessarily guarantee freedom or security. It does not necessarily guarantee liberty. Democracy can be overrun. It can be leveraged and used. Hitler, who despised democracy, leveraged it phenomenally well when he came to power. He boasts about it in his, in his speeches. Uh, democracy itself is not necessarily a safeguard, and yet that is what they see as being a potential safeguard to hopefully keep a world government from becoming too dictatorial or tyrannical. Uh, the other side of this is they see it as being federated, having a constitution, very specific powers, and, and uh, uh, delegated authorities, and yet even that too, Richard, does not necessarily give you a guarantee of freedom or liberty. Indeed, if you want freedom or liberty, you end up having to look at a much uh, smaller scale. Freedom and liberty typically does not come about through massive, potentially massive bureaucratic systems and regimes of management, which a world government, even though it may have delineated powers in the very beginning, runs a real risk of becoming far more uh, monstrous, far larger than originally intended by these people. And by the way, I actually, uh, I know a number of Federalists, and most of them that I've ran into, uh, their intentions are good. They see, they see world government as being the solution to, to global crisis and to conflict. And, and they view this as being a step towards world peace. And yet at the same time, you may have great intentions, but the road to hell truly is paved with good intentions. Well, as I always say to, to proponents of uh, a, a, such a system, a world federalist uh, a form of government or what have you, uh, people that uh, think, you know, that, that nationalism uh, is, is, is part of the, is at the root of the world's problems, uh, that I say, well, think about how unresponsive your government is in Ottawa. Exactly. Uh, or in if you're you know your provincial capital uh, now now think what it would be like if uh, your your government representative was in the Hague or wherever they where where would the uh, the world capital be by the way well 
that's something that has been talked about to some extent. And just simply, some of the ideas have come about. One of them is this idea of let's create a United Nations parliamentary assembly. Literally create an electable parliament that would fit hand-in-glove with the United Nations. If that was the case, if they did bring that about, and by the way, this is one of their major platforms, one of their major goals, then it would likely be located at the United Nations. They also recognized uh, that it could be located at, at New York or potentially even Geneva, but more than likely uh, at the United Nations headquarters. They all have also floated the idea of maybe attaching this world parliament to the World Trade Organization or have it stand alone as a voluntary organization, almost acting in the capacity of, uh, of a consultative group. And so when the next global crisis comes about, and the world is in a state of fear and is in a state of despair, the World Federalist community can then wave their banner and say, look, we already have the structure of a world government in operation. It's only a volunteer consultative type of, of structure at this point, but now it can become something more. Let's put the structures in place now so that when the crisis comes, we have the ability to have a world government in place after the crisis is over. That's the thinking behind this, Richard. Carl Teichrib is uh, with us, the editor at uh, Forcing Change. Very quickly, what is Forcing Change? Tell us about it, Carl. Well, forcingchange.org is a monthly publication that documents, analyzes, and details the changing structures of our politics, our economics, and our social, religious, cultural times. And so what we do is every month, we dig into what's taking place in terms of, of internationalism, federalism, globalization. We take a look at religion, interfaithism, the environmental movement, all of these interlocking areas, including economics. Now, I'll be frank, my, my worldview, my biases, so to speak, are pretty straightforward. I embrace a Christian worldview. I'm pro-liberty versus politically imposed equality. I'm pro-individualistic versus consensus collectivism. And then pro-free market, which is a volunteer and consensual exchange of goods and services. That's basically the roots of, of where I'm coming from. And so we have other authors that, that write for us. And uh, our material is, is extensively documented. I look at this as more of an educational an educational publication than it is anything else. It's All not right. opinion-based. We'll, uh, we'll find out uh, how people can, can uh, log on to Forcing Change in a moment. Carl Teichrup, Chief Editor at Forcing Change, and we'll talk more about the World Federalist Movement when The Conspiracy Show returns in a moment. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live... Call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Well, if one were to draw their own conclusion, I think one would ultimately conclude that we are marching inexorably towards uh, a one-world style of government, incrementally, uh, almost imperceptibly. Uh, in fact, you might even make an argument that we're already there, that the, the nation-state with its flags and its anthems and its institutions, it's all mere window dressing, but uh, in reality, 
uh, we all are, are already living in a, in a, uh, in, a in one world uh, style government. Uh, Carl Teichrib is here, chief editor at Forcing Change, making sense of our changing world. And uh, uh, the website there is www.forcingchange.org. And uh, how does this work? Now, you can sign up for a semi-annual membership, quarterly membership, monthly membership. Is this to access the articles? Because you do have free articles on the site, uh, Carl. How does that work? That's right. You can go onto the site and just grab what's free, and I, I encourage people to do so. The membership actually allows you to go into six years of back issues and to receive the new issue as it comes out every month. Uh, and so the issues are between 15, 18, and sometimes 45 pages in length. And uh, people who actually join up, get a membership, will have access to all six years, as, as stated, but then also special reports, various audio files, and a, a whole host of other materials that will help you to better understand so many of these different aspects that fit into what we know as globalization. How do you feel about what I, what I was just saying, that, that, that uh, we are already there, we just don't realize it. We already have essentially one world government, uh, or are certainly further down that road than many of us even realize. Oh, you're absolutely right. Strobe Talbot said this basically, I think he said this in 1991, uh, that, that we basically are in this type of a system already. Uh, I remember being at a, a joint World Federalist meeting with a number of other uh, groups back in the, in the late 1990s, where at that point in time, the, sh- the head of the Chicago branch of the World Federalist Movement was very adamant, we are in a form of world government right now. It's just that we don't have the structures in the place, uh, the structures in place to move it along in the way that we view it as what it would should as what it should look like but with the world trade organization with the imf uh... with the bank for international settlements with all these other uh... institutions and entities in place that already build up a regulatory uh... almost a, a standardization of how the world interacts with each other we already have an embryonic form of world government that is already in play. Do you think that m- many of these uh, regional wars, let's take, for example, what was called or labeled by the mainstream media, I think incorrectly, but they called it the, you know, the Arab Spring. Uh, and I, 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 I believe that what happened in places like uh, uh, um, uh, Libya, now Syria, in, in Morocco, Egypt, it wasn't uh, sort of a grassroots revolution, these regimes were targeted by the West, NATO, the Anglo-American establishment perhaps. These countries were targeted for regime change because they wouldn't play ball. Hosni Mubarak was no longer of use to the West and so forth. So that's, that's what these wars are about. Those countries that are not interested in one world government, they want to go at it alone, they don't want a central bank, they don't want an IMF. Is that what, what this is about? Uh, Maybe, maybe to some point. I, I believe it's probably more complex than that. Uh, what, what's interesting is that part of the world has its own different version of what the world, the world system would look like. And that's one thing that I have noted when I have been at various United Nations and other global governance events, that there is a competition, you could say, between ideologies, philosophies, and worldviews, depending on what part of the world you're from, depending on, on the cultural background, regarding what a world government would ultimately look like, how it, would be, how it would be arranged 
or how it would operate and what form of ethics would it be based on all these different ideas and i i've actually been in different different events where where everybody was in basically in agreement they want a world government but three hours of intense arguing over over what route to take really left myself at least uh, absolutely scratching my head going well you, you don't come together in terms of unity uh, you all have your own agendas your own egos a lot of egos and uh, i found that to be quite fascinating i experienced that actually at the united nations millennium forum when i attended the working session on uh, on developing new inter- international institutions and the time that uh, that we spent talking about a united nations um, a UN-based world parliament, I really saw this, this, you could say, this competition over who's going to have the ultimate say over how it would be shaped. Uh, it really, really erupt into lots of, of arguing and uh, raised voices, and it was actually quite interesting to watch. Now, what would the structure of the government be? Would, be, would there be, a, for example, a world a president, a world, uh, a, a, like a cabinet, uh, cabinet positions, or... Uh, how would it work, the structure? According to the World Federalists, it would be very similar to how the United States government is set up at this point in time. Uh, so you would have an executive branch, you'd have a judicial branch, which already is in the process of being put into play, the International Criminal Court. And here's actually, Richard, where things get interesting. Uh, we could take a look at the World Federalist Movement and say, um, it's a sideline organization, it doesn't have huge clout. You know, some of their successes have been remarkable. The International Criminal Court would not exist today, by and large, would not exist at all, if it wasn't for the tireless work and energy that the entire world federalist community put into lobbying for it, pressuring for it, networking with governments and with civil society organizations in a tremendous way. The backstory to the ICC is incredible, and it all circulates around the, the influence and the pressure put on by the World Federalist community. So, yeah, they recognize that if we're going to have a system of world government based on the American style of, of federalism, you need world law. You need a judicial system, and you need an executive branch. What would happen then to the nation-state? I mean, would we still have a Canadian federal government, but over top of that, we would have this, this other layer of government? Yes, absolutely. In fact, that's, that's been discussed quite a bit. Uh, different events have been to. It has been described in the sense that we already, have, uh, we already have county or municipal government. We already have city government. We have provincial government. We have federal government. Let's add maybe another layer, regional government. And uh, beyond that, add the final layer, which would be a type of international system. And uh, another level, level of taxation, no doubt. And actually, that's been quite discussed. Yes, in fact, the Canadian, huh, we should be, uh, I, I want to say this tongue-in-cheek, proud Canadians. In 1999, uh, we passed in the House of Commons the Tobin tax idea, which essentially says that when a world tax comes into play, based around the idea of international financial transaction uh, the taxes. Canada is the first one to step to the plate and play ball and, ha- and, and enforce an international currency tax. Uh, you know, Richard, this is stuff that we've been talking about for a long, long time. And it's not something that just happened overnight. This is the accumulation of a lot of very big ideas. Oh, of course, these things are always at least 50 years uh, 
uh, in the planning, I'm guessing. Yes. Carl oh, Teichrib yeah. is with us, chief editor at Forcing Change, and we're talking about the World Federalist Movement. So would there be, uh, for example, uh, let's let's assume that the, the term of this world president would be, I don't know, four years or maybe along the French system, seven years. So would there be this election cycle every four or seven years and primaries and, and different parties? And how would that work? Uh, and that's also being discussed within the World Federalist community. In fact, a few, a few reports have come out in the last couple of years looking at some of the different options. And it's all been all been debated all been hashed through weighted voting systems based on on the percentage of uh, your gross uh, your gross national product uh, with the amount of people that are in your nation with a whole a whole series of formulas put together to potentially be used in in creating a system of electable uh, members to this type of a world parliament uh, and so yeah the formulas already have been have been well hashed out, well worked through. In, in the World Federalist community, they still debate it to some extent how this would look. But, I mean, yeah, this has actually been thought through. This is, this is not fly-by-night stuff. Uh, they are quite serious regarding the idea of creating a United Nations-based world parliament. And would, would, a, would a nation be allowed to have its own standing army, for example? Well, it depends how far this goes. Uh, in certain in certain projections, the idea is that nations should only retain enough of a military force that they can deal with their own internal problems. Others say that. Well, that's interesting. Its own internal problems. Yes. Uh, in in other words, using an army against its own citizens. Yes. Yes. Hmm. To have its own military force, uh, so that they could in, impose law and order within their own boundaries and enough to contribute to an international military force if needed. And who would decide where that international force would be deployed and against what other jurisdiction? Oh, well, Richard, now we're coming up against another big idea from the World Federalist community, and that is the responsibility to protect doctrine, which the United Nations in 2005 uh, laid out essentially as the doctrine that they look to impose now when it comes to international conflict. Responsibility to protect is a big idea. Uh, it's the doctrine that says that if a nation state is incapable of, of securing the peace and order of its own citizens or actually goes against its own citizenry in the case of, let's say, Libya or Syria, where you're all... Or Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. True, yes then it is the responsibility of the global community to intervene militarily and bring order and peace back to that nation-state through the use of, of military forces. Now, Well, we have that now. I think Tony Blair labeled it the humanitarian doctrine, and we see how that's being utilized in places like Libya and Syria. Well, and, and that, of course, is the irony here with this discussion. Last year's Libyan uh, incursion through NATO and the United Nations, was all couched in the responsibility to protect doctrine, which came about through the World Federalist community and primarily uh, through Lloyd Axworthy and his work when he was the Minister of Foreign Affairs and then the Ambassador to the United Nations, uh, which actually is quite uh, an interesting little side to this whole thing. This summer I attended the 26th International Congress of the World Federalist Movement, the International Congress meets every four to five years. And it was held in Winnipeg. Now, 
it's always held in a world city, places like Tokyo, uh, Oslo, New York, Washington, uh, London. Why Winnipeg? I mean, a Winnipeg? <laughs> really? Not Toronto? I, I would think if you would have a Canadian world city, it would be Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver. But Winnipeg? And so as a Canadian, immediately the question pops up, why? Why in Manitoba? And the answer is quite simple. It's not necessarily uh, what Winnipeg is or is not. It is who is in Winnipeg. And it's Lloyd Axworthy. Former Liberal cabinet minister under uh, Trudeau and Chrétien. That's right. And Lloyd Axworthy is the international president of the World Federalist Movement. Interesting, interesting. Well, you know, um, I'm wondering to what extent the World Federalist Movement is, uh, you said it's kind of an open conspiracy. They're very open, they're very public, but in, you know, behind the scenes, we know that there are these other groups, I mentioned the Bilderbergs and the Council on Foreign Relations, that have similar objectives. I'm wondering then if the World Federalist Movement is not a psyop, but it's being put out there just to sort of test the waters on behalf of these more secretive groups, just to test the water and, and take the temperature of the, uh, the hoi polloi, if you will. Hmm, interesting. You may have something there. I, I do know that the World Federalist community has found that one of the largest ways of bringing about success is to, is to rally around the idea of coalitions. They, they really work together with other like-minded organizations, and even organizations, Richard, that you kind of scratch your head and go, well, why are you in bed with this group? And so they really, really network well within the civil society community. Let's find out who some of those strange, uh, some of those strange bedfellows are with the World Federalist Movement. When we come back, Carl Teichrib is with us, chief editor of Forcing Change, making sense of our changing world. Are we marching towards a one-world government? And if you'd like to weigh in, what do you think of the World Federalist Movement? Maybe it's utopia to you, not to me, but you tell me. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening. And so are you to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. As we discuss the World Federalist Movement, uh, Carl Teichrib is with us, chief editor at Forcing Change. A couple of years ago, Carl, I was in a, a documentary, interviewed for a documentary called United We Fall, and it was about the uh, the North American Union that supposedly is being developed right now between Canada and the United States uh, that would essentially uh, erase the, the borders between the U.S. and Canada and Mexico and the U.S. and create one big trading block similar to the European Union. And in that documentary, uh, another former liberal, you, men- you mentioned Lloyd Axworthy uh, in Winnipeg, but another f- federal uh, former liberal uh, cabinet member, John Manley, who also ran for the leadership, was, was interviewed. And he essentially said that it's, it's now uh, time to start thinking about 
getting rid of national sovereignty, uh, that it's kind of an antiquated idea, which fair enough, okay, that's coming from, uh, you know, a liberal. Uh, they tend to be a little more global, I guess, in, th- in their thinking. But then we even have what is, ost- who is ostensibly conservative, although I have my serious doubts, uh, uh, Stephen Harper, our prime minister, and other world leaders now starting to use words like enlightened sovereignty, which, again, tends to suggest that uh, they've already drank the Kool-Aid. They, they've already bought into this idea of a world federalist form of government. What are your thoughts? Oh, wow, Richard. Canada, actually, as a nation, we've been on the forefront of the world federalist movement for quite some time, primarily through our governmental leadership levels. Uh, the Canadian branch of the world federalist movement is much smaller than some of the other branches, particularly the U.S. branch. But historically, it has actually played a, a fairly significant role in the idea of, of forming the ideology around globalism. And it seems that Canadian politicians, for quite some time, actually going right back to World War II, have been enamored with this idea to some extent. Uh, Lester Pearson, Lester Pearson, I don't know if he was a Federalist, but I know that he spoke at Federalist events, and he did definitely come out with, with public uh, acceptance, and, and with encouragement towards the idea of world federalism. Uh, Diefenbaker, apparently, had uh, deep connections with the world federalist community. The, the list of Canadians who are involved in it or have had some type of association with the world federalist uh, community is, is quite extensive. And even at this particular event I attended, Bill Blakey was there, former, former uh, Speaker of the House of Commons. And Premier of, uh, was he Premier of Saskatchewan? Or that's another Blake, uh, no, that's Alan uh, Blakeney, sorry. That's right, right. that's right. Sorry. And uh, Bill Blakey was, was here as a, I didn't know this until I showed up for the event, and, and there he is, he, he's a full-fledged member, and he believes that world federal government is the way to go as well. Uh, Isn't there so something illegal a about at, at work here in our, in our Canadian political system? Isn't there something, I don't know, not illegal necessarily, but something duplicitous about our elected members attending a conference like that, that the chief aim of which is to surrender much of our sovereignty. I mean, it's not exactly like the Logan's, the Logan Act in the U.S. that people often bring up when we were talking about senators and presidents attending the Bilderberg meetings. But to me, there's something somewhat traitorous about that. Well, it's interesting. The new Democrat Party actually has, has a lot of sympathies with the World Federalist Movement and the World Federalist community. Uh, actually, the, the NDP has, has broached some of these same topics. And, and when we, we saw the introduction of the Tobin tax idea in 1998, and then it passed in 1999 in the House of Commons, it, was, it came up through the NDP community. Uh, the NDP, if you take a look at, at, their, at their perspective on the creation of a world a parliamentary assembly, a world parliament, they're all in favor of it. They believe that that's the way to go. So we already have a very deeply enmeshed Canadian political culture that even if they may not be members of these organizations, they already are certainly uh, in lockstep with the idea of, of globalization and a decrease of our national sovereignty. We seem very eager to throw our national sovereignty out the window or under the bus. This is something that's always troubled me about our Canadian system. We have this, this uh, in my view, an erroneous mentality of what sovereignty is all about. And we are, we are, very, uh, we are very quick, we are very quick to, to sidestep it 
and, and to seek something more. And part of it comes through this idea that we are an international country. We're a country that has played a very major role in international institutions, including the United Nations, NATO, and we're very proud of the UN peacekeeping service idea, which came about through Lester Pearson and the use of a crisis, which Pearson actually was very, very open about the, the idea that now we have an international crisis, and this is a time when everyone is so frightened of what might happen that they'll accept anything, even things that they wouldn't accept a week afterwards. All right, the time let's... to move is now. So, okay. you know, Richard, we already have a Canadian political culture that for some reason has this idea of let's gravitate towards the international. All right, uh, we'll be back and we'll uh, open up the phone lines. We'll get to uh, to your calls in a minute as well. If you've got a line, hold on to it. Back with more of my conversation with Carl Teichrup, Chief Editor at Forcing Change, as we discuss the world federalist movement. For it or again it? The Conspiracy Show, back with more in a moment. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Carl Teichrib is with us, Forcing Change. We're talking about the World Federalist Movement. Are we marching towards one world government? Maybe we may already be there. And what do you think of the idea? Uh, is the nation-state antiquated? Uh, is this the only way that we can avoid uh, these seemingly endless rounds of, of regional wars and world war, war world war, uh, world wars? <laughs> uh, that's a, a tough one at uh, 11.45 to get my tongue around. Anyway, um, We'll uh, we'll uh, pick it up here with Richard in Hamilton. Richard, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Good evening, uh, gentlemen. I have I have a, a question and a, and a comment. Uh, if you can take them, go ahead. Um, first off, uh, the uh, the question is, uh, what checks and balances are be put in place to prevent uh, somebody who's elected as world leader from hijacking and becoming something like another Adolf Hitler. Excellent point. Carl, do they have that one figured out? Well, and this is where things get a little bit murky. Uh, the idea here that is always put forward is that democracy and federalism will be those checks and balances, that there will be uh, an elected body, that there will be an executive body, a judicial body, uh, that there will be a system of world law, that all these basic structures will be put in place and that they will become the system of checks and balances in the same sense that the United States has a system of checks and balances. Uh, but your caller is right. The, the, something like this requires, uh, well, number one, I don't want something like this to even exist. Uh, there are too many problems that, run into, that you run into with this. But those checks and balances of democracy and federalism, in my mind, are simply something that will not work. Power begets power. Uh, this is something that, that could easily be superseded by somebody or some organization, assuming we already are looking at, at, at good motives to begin with. Well, we've already seen in the United States uh, that uh, the executive branch routinely routinely bypasses the legislative branch in declaring war, for example, in, in, in Libya. That, that action was certainly unconstitutional. 
Um, I mean, I can't remember the last time the president went to Congress and asked, uh, you know, permission to, to declare war. It just doesn't happen. Uh, and here in Canada, of course, we have the notwithstanding clause. So we have the parliament regular, not regularly, but they have the power to, to, uh, to overrule the judiciary. Uh, so these checks and balances, I, I don't think um, uh, are proven to, uh, to work or are, are certainly not very effective. No, you're, and you're right. We, we already have these checks and balances all messed up at the, at the national level, even at the local level sometimes. And we're, we're expecting that this is going to become the, the Band-Aid that cures the world's ills. I have a sneaking suspicion, and actually, Richard, more than a sneaking suspicion, that it's actually going to rip open the wounds a whole lot deeper. And, and that really is, is, is problematic. Uh, Hello? It's very yeah, weak, yeah, okay. democracy. Uh, all right, Richard, you had one quick comment, and then I have to move on. Go ahead, Richard. Okay, a uh, quick comment is... Uh, Back at the, in the late 19th and early 20th century, an American politician said that the, the stars and stripes will fly from, uh, from the Caribbean all the way up to the Arctic uh, Ocean. Uh, it seems like you mentioned about the... Uh, you Whoops, sorry. We, we lost Richard. I'm not sure how he dropped off the line there. I hope I didn't do that. Uh, Richard, my apologies if you're, uh, if you're still listening. Uh, Carl is in Washington State. Carl... Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with Carl Teichrib. Yeah, I bet I'm the furthest call you've ever gotten. Uh, you Actually, you're pretty close. We have had a call from Japan, uh, Carl, on, on occasion, but uh, welcome aboard nonetheless. Good to have you. Uh, thank you. I'm listening to you on iTunes, by the way. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, I would like to know what your guest, or if your guest ever heard that before the 2008 presidential election in the United States... Obama and Hillary Clinton were taken to a meeting, a secret meeting of the Bilderbergers, and that that was when they decided that Obama was going to be the next president. All right. We actually discussed that uh, a couple of weeks ago on the program with uh, Mark, uh, um, Mark Dice uh, talking about the Bilderbergs, and apparently Clinton uh, was uh, whisked off a, uh, a campaign um, a tour uh, and taken to this meeting in in Virginia. It was a Bilderberg meeting, supposedly. Who knows? But, uh, oh, uh, Carl, did you want to weigh in on that? I really don't have anything extra to add to what you, what you just said there, Richard. Uh, if I would add one thing about the 2008 uh, transition from, from Bush to Obama, is that I, I know of at least one world federalist who was brought in as a world federalist to, to help with the transition team develop ideas and policy direction uh, for, for, their, for their international affairs uh, concepts. So I, I already realized that the World Federalist Community at, at one point during the transition period did have some influence in developing American foreign policy, or at least helping to work through ideas of American foreign policy. Uh, Rose is in Guelph. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Rose. Let's have a quick comment. I'm very against this because when we actually hear about the President of the United States, they actually refer to him as the President of the free world. And that's always gotten my goat because guess what? He's not the President of the world, free or otherwise. But I see this just as another way for Americans to take over everything, including our natural resources. I'm very against it. Appreciate the call, Rose. Yeah, that's an interesting statement. Uh, yes, this is viewed as being an American, an American system per se, but it's more than that. There's actually a, a very strong 
European branch of the of the Federalist community, and the World Federalists were very involved in helping formulate the philosophies and ideas of European Union. In fact, there's a whole separate branch of the World Federalist community that has worked within the European Communion. Um, and in some senses, for quite some time, there actually was some competition between both sides of, 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 of the Atlantic. Uh, nonetheless, they do work in cooperation today. Uh, and again, something else that's kind of an interesting side note, in the past, the European Union has actually contributed a fair amount of money to the World Federalist Movement. What would, uh, what would happen to um, uh, currency? Would we have one world, uh, a one-world cu- currency? Well, that has been discussed, that has been talked about. Uh, at the 25th uh, Congress of the World Federalist Movement, they did put down a position paper uh, openly advocating and endorsing the creation of a single global currency. When I was uh, involved with this particular event in Winnipeg, they were looking at retracting that and did retract it to some extent because they didn't see this as being politically feasible at this point in time but it, it was retracted with the idea that there will come a point in time when we may need to look at it again and include that type of language. But the banking industry, the banking community, has, has certainly been discussing this to some extent. In fact, I would suggest pe- people go to our website, and then from there you can find a, uh, a WordPress blog link um, and check out the, the Forcing Change blog as well. Go through the, the archives, and we have a fairly extensive... Uh, essay that we did on the creation of a single global currency. And it was received well enough that it actually ended up getting reprinted in a, uh, an Indian-based publication titled simply A Single Global Currency, Perspectives and Challenges. Uh, now, do they foresee this happening, this world federalist form of government happening incrementally? So, for example, we have the European Union. Now, perhaps the next stage would be some sort of a, a pan-Asian union, a pan-African union, which is supposedly already in the works. Then we would have the North American Union, uh, and then they would gradually just merge those four or five major blocks together. Yeah, that, that definitely is something that they have been discussing and thinking about. The World Federalist community at this point, from what I see, are fairly opportunistic. Uh, one of the working sessions that I was sitting in, we took a look at four different ways towards world government, including what you just discussed, Richard, regionalism. And it was suggested that all four ways, including United Nations empowerment, uh, the creation of a, a global constitution that would be immediately implemented, let's say, through a, uh, a crisis situation, literally ground to sky world government overnight. Uh, these, and I believe there was one other, one other pathway to world government, these were all different venues that they recognized as being viable, viable paths towards the mountaintop of, of world and international uh, management. All right, let's uh, grab uh, James in Toronto. Uh, welcome to The Conspiracy Show, James. Yes, this one world government will not only eliminate all suffering, but all death that is promised in the Garden of Eden. All right, that's Arthur checking in under an alias <laughs> with his uh, regular... Uh, a reference to scripture. Michael is in Hamilton. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show, Michael. Hello. Hi there. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. I just uh, wanted to, 
to mention a couple of things here that are opinion, and, and I'm concerned, and, and I'm sort of not asking a question, but I'm throwing some information out, and perhaps you and your guests could, could okay. come back. If you can do it in, in about 30 seconds, we'd appreciate it, Michael, because yeah. we're tight for time. Well, anyway, first of all, anything that is not Canadian that governs me scares me. Uh, this is the greatest country in the world. And, you know, you talk about American influences and everything, you're talking about 47 million people that are on food stamps right now. And you've got so many countries that are not doing as well as we are. There's got to be something that will come from that that will mean take from our resources. And then, again, you've got the other issue of what is democracy. Everybody has their own opinion of what is democracy, what is freedom. I like this the way it is, and it scares me to think that someone else would have influence on us telling us what it is. Appreciate the call, Michael. Good points. Thank you. Uh, Carl, did you want to respond to that? I agree with that. I right. totally agree with that. Although, uh, Canada, great, greatest country, no argument there, but based on what you're saying, Carl, it sounds like our own our own leaders uh, are um, are buying into this and, and that the Canadian contingent of the World Federalist Movement has a great deal of power and influence. Well, their power and influence has, has, has waned and, and grown over time. Uh, it's ebbed and flowed. Nonetheless, the culture, the cultural mindset, has, has certainly already been well ingrained within our Canadian political system. I mean, even going back to Tommy Douglas, who was a world federalist, uh, you, you see this type of thinking permeating Canadian political culture. But how can uh, a political leader um, swear allegiance to the, uh, the crown, the queen, the flag uh, in the United States, um, and then at the same time, it's like they're crossing their fingers behind their back because they have an allegiance to this utopian one-world government. That, to me, again, is duplicitous and treasonous. Well, and, and the U.S. State Department uh, has actually a lot of Federalist connections and a lot of Federalist ties, going all the way back to World War II, going all the way back into the creation of the United Nations itself. The World Federalist Community and the State Department did work very tightly uh, throughout that process. Are these, are these individuals wringing their hands at the prospects of, let's say, a war with Iran, because that might be the catalyst that finally brings the world uh, into buying into this? Well, and here lies a bitter irony. Uh, When I was at this event, there was a lot of talk of the need for world peace. So that always is that goal, the, the carrot that's put out there. At the same time, they recognize that crisis is what will bring this about. And so they recognize that as the League of Nations was formed through World War I, the United Nations through World War II, some type of an international government must be created after the ashes of the next global crisis. And they recognize, too, that it could even be an economic crisis, something that would bring the world to its knees. Even if they have to manufacture that crisis or their their coalition groups have to manufacture that crisis to bring it about. Listen, we're out of time, Carl. Really appreciate your time. Again, the website, forcingchange.org. Correct. And it's been good to be with you again, Richard. Thanks, Carl. And if you'd like to know what's going on in this program, upcoming shows, past shows, you can log on to richardserrett.com. Welcome, friends. Good to have you aboard. Hope you'll stay with us for the hour. It's a happy day. It's a sad day. My uh, technical producer, David Gaskin, who I've mentioned to, uh, to you, is uh, leaving the program. Tonight marks his, uh, his final night. He's heading off to uh, find himself in Kathmandu. 
Uh, and then on uh, from there, David, I think you said you're going to Thailand and, and uh, you bought your backpack today. And uh, you're going to get your passport and your visas and your plane tickets. And what's around, uh, what's, I mean, what are we talk, talking about, uh, a, a trip to, to Kathmandu? What, what's that going to set you back? A thousand dollars? A thousand bucks. And then from there, what, what are you going to do in Kathmandu? What does one do in Kathmandu? Are you going to seek out a, you're going to climb a mountain? You're going to seek out a guru? You're going to ask, you're going to ask for some sagely advice? You're going to, you're going to crawl up there and you're going to say, what's life all about? What's, and maybe he'll share some veal recipes. Who knows? Well, I hope, I sincerely wish you the best, and I hope you find yourself or whatever it is you're looking for. You're in for a wonderful adventure, I know, and I hope you'll uh, stay in touch. Um, so thank you for the last, what has it been, about a year? You're my third technical producer, and, um, and, da- and Tim Spreen sitting behind the, uh, the audio board tonight. You've got big shoes to fill, but I know you're going to make a wonderful technical producer. Welcome. Welcome to the show. So if you call in tonight, and I'm going to ask you to call in, actually, in the first half hour. Uh, we're going to do something. Uh, it's been a while since I've opened the phone lines, just you, me, and the telephones. And, you know, I, um, I talk a lot about political subterfuge on the show and cover-ups and assassinations and, and uh, the world of, you know, black ops and spies. And, and, and uh, quite frankly, it can be a little depressing at times, a little doom and gloom. So what I thought we would do for the first half hour... Something I did years ago on another radio station, it was very popular, and, and um, I'd like to do more of it here, and, and so maybe we'll institute that starting tonight. I call it spine-tingling tales. And what I'm hoping that you'll do over the next half hour uh, before we discuss uh, one of those doom and gloom topics, uh, War with Iran, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the saber-rattling has begun in earnest. Uh, Israeli ben- uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warning that uh, Iran is a mere six or seven months away from developing nuclear weapons, despite the fact that the IAEA says they have no such program, and uh, U.S. intelligence uh, seems to echo that. Uh, so what's up with that? Well, you know, this, the, uh, the, uh, the same lie that got us into Iraq, is it going to work this time? I don't know. We'll discuss that, though, with the Jeffrey Steinberg from Executive Intelligence Review in a little bit. But from, from now until then, indulge me, if you will. Uh, besides indulging me, if you've had an encounter with the paranormal, whether it's a UFO sighting or uh, maybe you've experienced some poltergeist activity, um, maybe you've experienced the old hag syndrome, if you don't know about that, uh, we can discuss that a little bit. Uh, um, if you've ever had that feeling you're, you're lying in bed and all of a sudden you're filled with dread and then you're, you feel like you're paralyzed and you feel some evil presence in the room and then you feel this great weight on your chest. Uh, mainstream science calls it sleep paralysis. Uh, but others, for centuries, call it something else. It's called the old hag syndrome. And people have reported waking up and seeing this demonic looking creature sitting on their chest. Um, so if you've, you've, if you've had an encounter with the old hag, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, perhaps you've had a prescient dream, a recurring dream. You've dreamt something over and over and over, and then it comes true. Would love to hear about that. Uh, or some bizarre coincidence. You ever happened, you ever had this happen? You're, 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 uh, you're, some, you're someplace, and all of a sudden, somebody's name pops into your head. Somebody you haven't thought about in years. Maybe it was someone from high school, and you have no idea. Why did I think of that person? You weren't even particularly close with them. You haven't thought about them for years. All of a sudden, the name is in your head. You turn the corner, and there they are. Has that, that happened to me. 
about five years ago. And um, uh, I was just, what do the British say? Gobsmacked. Gobsmacked. Or you're thinking of somebody and the phone rings and, of course, it's them on the other line. That's, what is that? Is that a coincidence? I think not. Uh, Or we can talk about reappearing and disappearing objects. Years ago, I talked about this on the air. I was at my mother's helping helping her with some gardening. And I took out a, uh, I was staking some, some young trees or something. So I took out a sledgehammer from the shed and I leaned it up against the shed. And uh, then I went on to do something. I went back f- to get the sledge and it was gone. And my mother uh, was not in the house. I think she went out grocery shopping. I looked, I, I looked everywhere. The, the sledgehammer was not where I had I'd leaned it up against the shed. And then about five hours later, there it is again. Now, it was either someone playing a trick on me or... That I don't know. There was some sort of a time portal, or I ripped the space-time continuum, or I don't know what happened. But anyway, what, let's let's uh, let's let's do this. Let, if you've had one of these experiences, unburden yourself because you need to share that with somebody. It's not healthy to keep that inside. You don't want to share it with your boss uh, because he'll just back out of the room slowly. And um, believe me, you know, I um, I've not had a lot of paranormal experiences. Um, I saw my doppelganger once. I've shared this on the air. I won't bore you with it again. Shortly after my father passed away, I saw myself hovering above my body, but that's enough. I won't say any more. Um, I've not seen a UFO. Would like to. Uh, I've not seen Bigfoot, although there was a woman in Kentucky, and maybe I'll I'll get to the story a little bit later, who uh, claims that she saw a Bigfoot. She surprised the creature as it was uh, actually killing a deer. Uh, she shone her, her flashlight on it and caught it totally by surprise, and then it turned and, of course, ran off. Uh, so if you've had a, uh, an encounter with a strange creature, not necessarily a Bigfoot, uh, would love to hear from you as well. So we're going to open up the lines, and as I say, until uh, 12.30 or, um, or for some of our affiliates, it won't be 12.30, uh, to the bottom of the hour, as we say in the radio business. Let's do some spine-tingling tales. And then, as I say, at the bottom of the hour, we'll welcome uh, Jeffrey Steinberg, who is the executive or the uh, the counterintelligence director at Executive Intelligence Review, which is a uh, a weekly publication. And uh, how will I describe EIR? Well, it's going to give you the uh, analysis of the news that you're not getting from the mainstream media, that's for sure. So Jeffrey will come uh, prepared with some very interesting insights about... Uh, what's coming down the pipe in terms of um, a possible war with Iran. And I got to say, I, I don't think the, the, the news is good. Um, I think it's pending. And I, this is going to be a colossal tragedy. We're talking about 100 million souls in that great country. Wonderful culture. Wonderful people. The government, eh. <laughs> I think we all know uh, the government is, um, is not, uh, not, not so nice. However... I am not convinced by any stretch that they have nuclear weapons capabilities, either is the IAEA, but as I say, we'll discuss that with uh, Jeffrey Steinberg from uh, EIR in just a few moments. Uh, scientists have uh, discovered well-preserved frozen woolly mammoth fragments deep in Siberia. So uh, they're talking now about you know the possibility of a real-life Jurassic Park because this woolly mammoth may contain living cells, ladies and gentlemen. So you know where this is going. Living cells, which again would uh, edge us a tad closer to a a Jurassic Park scenario. We could clone a prehistoric animal, 
And um, this is what this uh, scientific missions organizer said earlier this week. This is Russia's Northeastern Federal University. And they said, and they sent an international team of researchers up there, and they discovered this mammoth hair, soft tissues, and bone marrow some 328 feet or 100 meters underground during a summer expedition in the northeastern province of Yakutia. And the expedition, expedition chief, Simon Grigoriev, said Korean scientists with the team had set a goal of finding living cells in the hope of cloning a mammoth. Scientists have previously found bones and fragments, but not living cells. So, I guess what would they do? They would take the, the living cells from a mammoth, uh, a clone it, take the genetic material, then take, a, I guess, like a cell from an elephant, blast out the nucleus, put in this genetic material, and then impregnate an elephant, because that would be the closest mammal, right, to a woolly mammoth. And then you would have a situation where a female elephant would give birth to a woolly mammoth. And bingo, bango, Bob's your uncle, we've got Jurassic Park. And then what happens? Somebody finds, well, what was the scenario in Jurassic Park, right? You had a mosquito that had fed uh, on the blood of a, like a T-Rex, right? Then that mosquito was encased in amber, like pine tar or something. And so totally preserved. And so the, the, uh, the, the genetic material in the blood from the T-Rex was preserved. Is that possible? I don't know. But if it is, and one day we find a mosquito trapped in amber, and we can extract that material, we could clone a T-Rex. And couldn't we all use that at the, you know, our next visit at the Toronto Zoo? Because, I mean, how many times can you go there and look at the polar bears and the penguins? You know, you go to the North American exhibit, yet there's a moose, there's a red fox. We need a T-Rex at the zoo. You imagine the boost for tourism? All right. I mentioned the, um, the Bigfoot sighting. Uh, the Bluefield Daily Telegraph. This is in West Virginia. Bluefield, West Virginia. We don't have an affiliate yes, in, yet in West Virginia. So let's, uh, let's work on that. But this woman in Moorhead, Kentucky, paid $75 to join other paranormal researchers on a late-night hike through the Daniel Boone National Forest, where she says she got a glimpse of Bigfoot, a supposed larger-than-life uh, creature whose existence has been long debated. And a couple of weeks ago, or was it last week or the week before, we had two Bigfoot trackers, uh, Pete, uh, Peter Gatilla and Tom Muzilla. Uh, we're on, and uh, they've had some pretty close encounters with uh, with Bigfoot. Uh, anyway, Teresa, she only uses her first name, and I understand why, as do many Bigfoot believers, for fear of ridicule, uh, said her group had been walking along trails late Saturday night near Cave Run Lake when she heard grunting and growling. The group stumbled upon the creature, she said, as he was trying to kill a deer. He was interpreted, or he was interrupted, by bright lights shining in his face. The rugged, hilly forest is located in eastern Kentucky. When the flashlight hit his eyes, he immediately turned his head and moved his body and turned the opposite direction we were in, Teresa said. The eight-foot-tall creature quickly ran away deep into the forest. She said she chased him. She wanted to talk to him. She's an established spiritual medium and animal communicator from New Jersey, she said. A little uh, word of advice to Teresa. If you interrupt a Bigfoot while he's in the process of killing and perhaps devouring a deer, 
I'm guessing he's not interested in having some sort of a spiritual conversation with you. So probably the best plan of action would be to run in the opposite direction, not chase the eight-foot bipedal carnivore into the, uh, into the forest. All right, having said that, your spine-tingling tales when we come back on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. All right, let's get it going. Uh, Spine-tingling tales now until the bottom of the hour, your encounters with the paranormal. Like I said, you know, it's not healthy to keep it inside. And uh, when you call into this program, you get a sympathetic ear. Uh, because I'm not going to uh, roll my eyes uh, or back out of the room slowly or uh, call you a kook uh, the way maybe your friends and family will. Uh, Because the reason I do this program is I believe that there is more to this world than we can, as I've said many times, see, feel, hear, touch, smell. There simply is. And uh, today, what we call paranormal, one day we may be able to explain. But until we do... It is the paranormal. And let's begin uh, with David, who's calling from Cincinnati, Ohio. David, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good to have you aboard. David, are you there? David? David's having some phone issues. Well, David said he was having some, uh, hearing some scratching under the bed. He was hearing some scratching under the bed. I don't know. David, are you still there? No. All right. We've lost David. I wanted to tell you about this 23-year-old woman uh, from Georgia. Have you seen this program, uh, My Strange Addiction? There's people that come on and they, uh, they're addicted to eating cat food or talcum powder or some... Uh, well, these things just seem to get, be getting stranger and stranger. Now there's this woman in Marietta, Georgia, and she's, uh, she's addicted to eating something called cellotape. I don't know what cellotape is. I know it doesn't belong inside your body. Anyway, she says she nibbles her way through about 6,000 feet of tape every month. Uh, Let's say hello to Paul. Paul had a bed scare. Hello, Paul. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Paul. Can you hear me? I can. There we go. Good. No, I was... This happened a wee while back, though. I was in bed. We lost Paul. I'm not sure what's going on over there. Uh, can we get Paul back? No. All right. Who's this on uh, this line? Let's say hello to... Who do we have? Hello. Hello there. Who is it? Hi, my name's Dave. Hello, Dave. Is this Dave from Cincinnati, Ohio? We lost earlier. Yeah, I have to... I have a little scare under the bed there. Um, You're the one with the bed scare. You're hearing... Okay, so what's going on? Well, basically, I'm lying in bed at night, and... I hear like a scratching, and every time I go under and check, I look and I kind of see, and I don't see anything there. So you're definitely hearing scratching, and it's definitely coming from under your bed. It's not in the walls, for example. It couldn't, or under the floorboards. It couldn't be mice, or God forfend, rats, or. Well, I hope not. <laughs> I guess anything's possible, though. And when does it happen? Generally, it's always at night, right? Well, I have a hard time sleeping, so I'm usually lying in bed and I'm trying to get to sleep. And yeah, it's usually pretty late. Everything's pretty quiet. And I just 
spooks me out. I just don't know what it is. And when you look under the bed, does the scratching stop or does it persist or? Uh, it tends to go away. Like it tends not to be there when I'm looking. But then once it kind of quiets down again, I kind of get my my bearings. I hear it again. Well, uh, obviously, you know the. Um, uh, Occam's razor says the simplest explanation is the most likely. You could have, unfortunately, hate to be the barringer of bad news, you may have some mice. You know, when mice get underneath floorboards or... Um, I remember we had squirrels in the attic once, and they make such a noise. I mean, they're not huge creatures, they're, yeah. but they're little feet. They get, you know, clawing at the, the wood or the whatever, you know, the, 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 um, the insulation. And I, told, it's, I swear, it sounded like there was a herd of elephants... And I thought the, the ceiling was going to cave in. And it, lo and behold, it was just a, a, a squirrel. So you might want to, you know, uh, call an exterminator and see if you have a, a mice or, uh, or a rat problem. Probably a mice, a mice problem. I wouldn't wish rats on anyone. But well, if it's, I, really, I really hope that is it. I hope it's not something, you know, sinister. Or, I don't know. Well, I mean, have you had any other experiences, uh, paranormal, or is it just the scratching well, under the bed? The only thing I can really comes to mind is I, I used a Ouija board once, and I, it literally moved under my fingers. I didn't push it. It was moving. So I believe there's something going on there, and that was in the same house. Well, um, we had uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley on the program uh, talking about uh, Ouija boards and how uh, she believes, and I tend to agree, that you can open up sort of a portal uh, you know, to some other dimension, perhaps, and who knows what you could have welcomed into your house. So... First try the mice, and if that doesn't work, then the Catholic priest. Okay. Okay? Well, appreciate it, and I love your show. All right, David, in uh, Cincinnati, thank you. So first the mice, the, first the exterminator, then the priest. And, and maybe if you can find a, an exterminator who's a priest, uh, then, you know. I like the sounds of that. All right. Good luck with your uh, the scratching under the bed, Dave. Thank you. All right. Let's say hello next, if we can uh, work the the, uh, the phones here. We're having some phone trouble tonight. Uh Helena. Helena had an out-of-body experience. Out-of-body when I was 12 years old. When you were 12, and how did that happen? Well, I'll, I'll explain it to you. I was lying in bed. I was crying. I had a very bad day. I had fought with my friends. And suddenly, I felt hands underneath me, lifting me up. Then I was floating in the air. I was floating up right to the ceiling. And it was just euphoric. It was wonderful. It was like being in heaven. And then I heard a voice say, no more tears, Helena. Everything will be all right. I don't know how long it lasted for, but I'll always remember that experience. It was wonderful. Now, people have said to me, you've never been in your body. You've always been out of your body, <laughs> you know, because I've always been um, on the edge. I've always been on the edge of... Uh, of um, normality. Yes, I... And also, I, I've seen my soul in the mirror. My soul is the soul of a devil. My soul is the soul of a devil. And it horrified me. What I saw in the mirror horrified me. Oh, my. My husband said... I told my husband, cover all the mirrors in the, in the house. I don't want to look at myself anymore. Cover all the mirrors. I'm frightened. I'm terrified of the face that I see in the mirror. I'm terrified. Helen, if I could go My back to your, when no, you were, tw when I could take you back. Don't cover all the mirrors. Don't cover all the mirrors. Okay, if I could take you back to when you were 12, uh, when you had this out-of-body experience. Yes. W were you able to sort of look back and see your, your own body from above? 
No, no, I felt that I was flying. I was floating in the air. I was floating in the air up to the ceiling. I didn't look down at my body. No, I, I haven't looked down at my body. And that never uh, happened again? No, it never mm. happened again. Just and what, one time. What it brought, on, brought, brought it on? Were you ill as a child, or what happened there? Well, as a child, um, I hallucinated, and um, I had terrifying nightmares, terrifying visions. Um, I was considered schizophrenic, but... Um, now, a cleric has said that the voice that you heard was the voice of God. Now, mm. I don't believe that. It was an hallucination. It, it was an hallucination. It was, okay. And um, I don't know how I, I, I floated in the air. I don't know how I got up there to the ceiling. I don't know how my body got up there. But I you, don't know. I don't. I can't explain it. But you felt your body rising, and your 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 body felt like you were up against the ceiling. Yes, it was like like a feather, like it rose. Mm. It rose up, like I ascended to heaven. Remarkable, you know, remarkable to the ceiling. That's but it was remarkable. A wonderful, euphoric. It's the only time that I've felt peaceful. The only time in my life that I've felt at peace. I've never felt at peace. Ever since then. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Helena. And, no, uh, no. Listen, I, I really appreciate you sharing that story with me. And uh, uh, short of a, an out-of-body experience, I hope you have more peaceful uh, feelings and events uh, like that. All right. Uh, we can uh, continue on with uh, some spine-tingling tales. Or if there's anything else you, you, uh, you want to uh, uh, toss around, keeping in mind that on the program we discuss conspiracies, hence the name of the program, and uh, we also talk about cover-ups, and we talk about alternative energy, we talk about alternative health. So, in addition to spine-tingling tales, we can open up uh, the, uh, the, the, the discussion as well. And keeping in mind, in just a few moments, Jeffrey Steinberg will be here from Executive Intelligence Review, the counterintelligence, uh, yeah, counterintelligence director, I have that right. I'm not even sure what that means a director of counterintelligence. Uh, Jeffrey's a very intelligent guy, so it's not counterintelligence as far as that goes. However, um, the question will be put to Jeffrey, how close are we to war with Iran? The, um, the warning that was issued uh, on Sunday by uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, I'm not buying it. He basically is telling us we're six to seven months away from looking at an Iran that has the bomb. I don't buy it, and I'll tell you why I don't buy it, because the IAEA inspectors have been in there repeatedly. Iran is vigorously inspected. They have signed the non-proliferation treaty. Iran has. The, um, they are allowed to pursue... I mean, one of the ideas behind, one of the missions behind this non-proliferation treaty is to encourage the peaceful use of, of nuclear technology, meaning nuclear energy. And so under that treaty, Iran is allowed to pursue a nuclear energy program. Um, and so they have the inspectors coming in. The inspectors have said they have no nuclear uh, uh, weapons program. So if you don't believe that, well, what has U.S. intelligence said? In 2007, they said Iran has no nuclear weapons program. And I'm told that that is still the, the mindset within the U.S. intelligence uh, groups, 
And then yet we have, on a number of occasions, President Barack Obama saying Iran has nuclear uh, uh, weapons capability or they're close. Now we have uh, the Israeli prime minister. Uh, are we going to fall for this again, folks? Is this not a repeat of a few years ago when we were told repeatedly Iraq had weapons of mass destruction? Come on. Not a second time. We're talking about 100 million souls in Iran. We really um, got We have to wake up. Anyway, uh, Richard is in Hamilton and has a, uh, a supernatural story. Richard, go ahead. You're on the air. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Richard, for taking my call again. Um, a friend of mine, uh, she lives a couple uh, blocks away from me, and uh, she has uh, two spirits living in her house, which are quite friendly. In fact, uh, the one a uh, couple of times she's fallen down the stairs, and the fallen the, or pushed. Pardon? Fallen or pushed? Uh, fallen, and the and the spirit put her in the recovery position. What does that mean? Uh, well, uh, putting the body um, um, when an injury occurs uh, to, pre- uh, to prevent vomiting, they, you put the body on ah, the side. Really? Yeah, and she. How uh, does she know that it was? I mean, was she unconscious and then woke up in the recovery position, or? Uh, her daughter found her that way. My word! And uh, and they've actually seen uh, uh, seen the ghost. And what does the ghost look like? Um, well, uh, the uh, the spirit was dressed in a World War One uniform, uh, army uniform, and uh, but it's never been harmful. It's been uh, very protected of the family. And then her daughter uh, one night. Uh, like I'm a merchant seaman, and uh, her daughter went uh, uh, said to my uh, to her mother, uh, "You you got to phone Richard, tell him that he's in danger." And and her mother said, "Well, I can't. He's on board a ship, and uh, uh, it'll look uh, crazy if nothing happened." And sure enough, I was on the dock, and I suffered a very uh, got into a very serious situation, which almost cost me my life. And when I was talking to her, uh, when I come home on leave, uh, she said, uh, Richard, uh, you had a bad accident, didn't you? And I said, yes, how did you know? And she told me about it. Wow. Uh, that's what else can daughter. I say but wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that'll stop you in your tracks. I mean, uh, so how long ago was that, Richard? Well, this was... Uh, well, my accident occurred back in '95. Okay. And so, the uh, the, uh, the the house is very uh, her house was uh, built in 1895. And how they know that there was a coin put in the wall, and if the workmen figured it was a special house, they would do that. And uh, so the people that lived in there must have loved the house that much that. Uh, they stayed on after they passed away. Richard, listen, I really appreciate you uh, calling in and sharing that story. Thank you for that. Thank you for all your stories. Wish we had time for more. We will make time for more. We'll do this more often. I kind of threw that at you last minute. Spine-dingling tales. So, uh, and we had some phone problems, so we didn't get some of you on as I'd intended. Anyway, Jeffrey Steinberg standing by from Executive Intelligence Review to talk about the impending war with Iran. You don't want to miss that. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
There's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Wars and rumors of wars. The saber-rattling is starting to ramp up. Today, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned that Iran is a mere six to seven months away from developing the capability of producing nuclear weapons. Which is interesting because in 2011, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Association, uh, filed a report in which they stated uh, Iran does not have uh, a nuclear weapons program. Well, we need to make sense of all this, obviously, and so to help us do so... We've enlisted the help of a good friend of the program. He is the Director of Counterintelligence with Executive Intelligence Review, Jeffrey Steinberg. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm very good. How are you? Very well. Before we get to that, explain to people a little bit about EIR. What is Executive Intelligence Review? Uh, EIR is a weekly publication that has been publishing 50 times a year since 1974. It was founded by Lyndon LaRouche, who many of you may know was a candidate for the Democratic Party nomination for president many times up through 2004. And uh, LaRouche is campaigning aggressively now for a revival of the policies of the former president, Franklin Roosevelt, and uh, is also pressing for the removal of President Obama from office because he represents the opposite current within our national politics here in the United States and within the Democratic Party. How can people get a a subscription to EIR? Uh, If they go online and go to www.larouchepub.com, that's L-A-R-O-U-C-H-E-P-U-B, as in publication, dot com, uh, you will find on the homepage there all of the information that you need to subscribe, and I would strongly urge people to do it. As I say, the publication is weekly. Uh, it's published every Tuesday or Wednesday, and uh, you will get a uh, ID and password, which gives you access to everything on the website. We're now in the process, by the way, of posting electronically for research purposes, every single issue dating back to April of 1974 when we first began publication. All right, Jeffrey, what did you make uh, of today's uh, announcement or warning by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? Do you buy it? Does does Iran have nuclear capabilities, nuclear weapons capabilities? you know, uh, the the National Intelligence Council, which is the uh, U.S. intelligence community's highest analytical body, it represents the top analysts of 16 distinct and separate U.S. intelligence agencies did an in-depth study in 2007 and updated it again in 2010. And their conclusion was that from the time of the overthrow of Saddam Hussein in 2003, Iran has halted its work on weaponization. Uh, That means they're not attempting to do any further work on constructing a bomb. Clearly, they're enriching uranium. They say it's exclusively for peaceful purposes, a nuclear power plant. They have a, um, an isotope reactor for medical purposes. Uh, 
So right now, they're not working on building a bomb, and even the Israelis acknowledge that. So the question is, were the Iranians to decide at some hypothetical future point to uh, work towards building a nuclear weapon, uh, it would take them minimally a year, probably two years, to do it. And furthermore, the United States and other allied countries would know uh, from the very outset that they were in a sort of a race to build a bomb, and there would be more than sufficient time to take whatever steps were necessary then at some hypothetical future moment to stop it from happening. So right now there is no threat of Iran having a nuclear weapon. Netanyahu's statements on U.S. national television today, he was all over the place. He was on Meet the Press, he was on CNN, um, were really an attempt to put political pressure on the U.S. government to commit to a firm uh, set of conditions, a so-called red line, when the United States would go to war. And uh, under no circumstances should the United States do that. Um, uh, Obama, unfortunately, in his own right, uh, is prepared to launch that kind of war, but he's facing stern opposition from the top ranks of the U.S. military and the U.S. intelligence community who know that any kind of even limited attack on Iran would likely lead to a broader regional war that would almost automatically escalate into a global confrontation. But isn't that the idea? Isn't that what the globalists want? Well, you know, there's a faction of the globalists who have the attitude. This is a high-ranking element within the British Empire system who basically say, um, if we can't maintain power and we can't dictate policy, uh, then uh, let humanity go to hell. Okay, just a minute, Jeffrey. We're just going to take a quick time out. We'll come back and pick up on that point. Jeffrey Steinberg, Executive Intelligence Review. Is war with Iran imminent? Back with more in a second. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We're here with Jeffrey Steinberg, counterintelligence director for Executive Intelligence Review, uh, talking about the uh, the beating of the war drums, and it seems like we're ramping up for war with Iran. The question is, why are we going to are we going to go down this road again? Uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, they told us, and um, some of us believed them. Some of us, many of us, did not, and yet <laughs> um, we had the war with Iraq, and here we go again. It's it's the 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 same page out of the same playbook, but see, people seem to be falling for it again. Or are they, Jeffrey? Well, I think that there's a uh, significant difference between then and now. Um, in 2002-2003, when Bush and Cheney were beating those war drums for war against Iraq, um, there was opposition. There was disagreement within the U.S. intelligence community. There was disagreement 
within the U.S. military, uh, but they basically deferred to others. And as a result, we got the disastrous Iraq War. Now we're in a much more dangerous situation because clearly at this point, both Russia and China uh, are committed to the idea that we're not going to have any more colonial imperial wars in uh, the Middle East. China is deeply dependent on the region for uh, energy supplies, oil and gas. Uh, Russia has their only uh, port on the Mediterranean in Syria. Uh, Iran is uh, right on the Russian border, formerly on the Russian border. So they don't, wa- they don't want a war, a big war, right in their neighborhood. And they've made clear that if there's an attempt by the U.S. and Britain and France to do a replay of what happened in uh, Libya in the uh, 2011, where the Russians and Chinese were lied to to convince them to abstain from a U.N. Security Council vote on creating a no-fly zone and humanitarian corridors to protect the people of Benghazi. Um, There was never any real commitment to anything other than overthrowing Gaddafi and killing him. The Russians and Chinese have said, we are never going to sit on the sidelines again. So the Syria situation, the Iran situation, have with them the potential for a general war, a war that could very potentially lead to the exchange of nuclear weapons. That's an extinction event. So let's There's just... Uh, people in, yeah. Sorry, let me just uh, reemphasize here or, or um, reset. Iran, at least two years away from having a capability of uh, developing a nuclear weapon, correct? Right. And yet, Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, insists they're only six to seven months away. The interesting thing, of course, here is that Iran is a signatory to the the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Israel, which has nuclear weapons, perhaps a hundred or more, is not a signatory, will not allow IAEA inspectors... Iran is regularly and vigorously inspected by the IAEA. What gives? Well, you know, this is exactly the uh, situation that the U.S. allowed to be created. Way, way, way back in 1947, 1948, General George Marshall, who was the hero of World War II and at the time was Secretary of State under Harry Truman, warned that if the U.S. endorsed the creation of the State of Israel, that there would be 50 years of continuous conflict and the U.S. role in the region would be marginalized to strictly military capability. Now, Marshall was not only right, but he underestimated how long this conflict would go on. So we've got a situation where the Israelis are playing a very high-risk poker game with the United States. And they're not just dealing with President Obama, who Netanyahu thinks he can push around and especially manipulate and blackmail in the context of a presidential election. But he's dealing with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's dealing with the U.S. intelligence community and people who are, frankly, pretty fed up with uh, the tail wagging the dog, the Israelis and the Zionist lobby continuously attempting to dictate policy to the U.S., in this case, 
dragging the United States into a war that General Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, is convinced will rapidly uh, turn into a general war. Anybody who's a student of history knows that uh, on the eve of World War One, you had a whole uh, confluence of things going on in the Balkan region that involved alliances and agreements and secret treaties so that a relatively insignificant event like the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand proved to be the trigger for what later historians would call World War I. We're in the danger zone of the same thing happening today, and that's what the Israelis are messing with. And the danger is that if you get a limited military action, for example, if the United States gets directly involved militarily in the attempt to overthrow the Assad government in Syria, like what they did in Libya, uh, you're going to get general war. If the Israelis attack Iran and the Iranians retaliate against the U.S. in some fashion, like against our troops in Afghanistan, you've got World War III on your hands. Well, yeah, clearly so this is not in the best. Clearly, it's not in the best. You call it high stakes poker. I mean, it's it's insanity. It's it's clearly not in the best interest of Israel. Uh, I mean, I give me your take on this. But my my instincts tell me that that Netanyahu is taking his marching orders from the same globalists that are that are you know dictating American foreign policy. That's exactly right. Uh, Lyndon Larouche refers to this as the British imperial system. Now, people can say, well, the British are a bunch of uh, inconsequential putzes now. They're no, nothing even close to what they were during their former times of the height of the British East India Company and the British Empire. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, we saw it with Tony Blair and George Bush with the Iraq War, and we're seeing similar things today. President Obama has a uh, degree of uh, loyalty to defending the system of the British Empire. He might, he might not even understand it as such, but the global financial system, the relationships among the world powers, is part of an imperial structure that's been in place for a very long time. We've got to overturn that whole system. So you're right. Israel under Netanyahu is a pawn of the same exact system that Obama is a pawn to, and that's why we're in a grave danger of a rerun of the events that led to World War One. except this time uh, we have nuclear weapons. And if there is a general war, they will be used, and we may very well be facing extinction. That's the frightening, frightening reality of the situation that we're in. With Obama in the White House, in effect, this imperial system has their finger on the U.S. nuclear trigger. Well, that's not going to improve uh, if, if Romney's elected. I mean, it's, it's the two-headed monster. There's, there's no substantive difference between the two on foreign policy, is there? No, not at all. That's why uh, Mr. LaRouche has been saying you've got to really overturn the apple cart altogether. Obama has committed impeachable crimes... Uh, the Libya war itself was a flagrant violation of the U.S. Constitution. Only the Congress, under our Constitution, has the authority to uh, bring the country to war unless we've been directly attacked. The reason for that is that the Founding Fathers, in their wisdom, 
understood that you don't want to create something that could eventually be a replay of a British monarchy, where an absolute dictator, the king or the queen, can make these decisions alone. The uh, founders said that only Congress can have the authority to declare war. Once war is declared, the president is the commander-in-chief, because you need one. But only Congress has the authority to declare war. And in the case of Libya, Obama flaunted the fact that he would not and did not go to Congress. He went to war, and he had all kinds of lame excuses. Well, NATO wants to do it. The U.N. Security Council wants to do it. We're only leading from behind. All of that was complete BS. The reality is that the president brought the United States to war unconstitutionally by never going to Congress. And as a result of that, he should be impeached. If you get Obama out of there, that shakes up the election process in the United States and gets us out of the dilemma of choosing between two unacceptable options an Obama option, which could very well mean thermonuclear extinction, and a Romney option, which is a great big gigantic question mark. And as you say, there's no reason to believe that there'd be a radical change in policy away from this drive for global war if Romney were elected president. All right. Well, that's a pretty gloomy scenario. But, uh, Jeffrey, thanks nonetheless for giving this heads up. And, uh, again, we appreciate your time. Executive Intelligence Review. Uh, you can subscribe online at www.larouchepub.com. Thanks, Jeffrey. My pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Back next week with uh, Greg Pallast, how the U.S. elections have already been stolen, plus British filmmaker Richard D. Hall on the animal mutilation controversy. That's it for me. So long to David Gaskin, who's off to, to uh, Kathmandu. Welcome aboard to Tim Spreen. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.